sponsored by Displate. This is Apple's new 13-inch MacBook Pro, the higher-end version. There are actually two new 13-inch MacBook Pros. And while I know that might sound confusing, it's really nothing new. We just tend to forget that Apple has had both lower and higher-end models on the market for, basically, ever. This year, those models include a new, low-end, two-port that's pretty much the old 13-inch, but with the new Magic Keyboard and double the storage for the same price, and a new high-end four-port that has that Magic Keyboard, double the storage for the same price, but also newer and optionally much bigger specs. Now, quick reminder, this is a brand new channel, so hit subscribe and ring the bell so we can hang out in the comments together when new videos go live, then grab a beverage, maybe a snack, and strap in. I'm Rene Ritchie, and this is the 13-inch MacBook Pro Review, 2020 style. Very, very little has changed with the MacBook Pro design since the last big redesign in 2016. This is almost exactly the same chassis as before, just a tiny bit thicker, and it comes in exactly the same finishes, silver and space gray. Yeah, if you want gold, you gotta go with the MacBook Air, which has the exact same width and depth as the Pro now. It's just thinner at its thinnest, but also thicker at its thickest. Wedge-shaped more than boxy, and the Pro is also about 0.3 pounds heavier. So if you intend to travel a lot, you know, one day, again, maybe, the air will be a tad lighter for you. If you don't, the Pro will have a touch more room for performance. I'm reviewing the higher-end new 13-inch MacBook Pro, which has four USB-C 3.1 Gen 2 speed Thunderbolt 3 ports, which I vastly prefer over the two-port Pro and Air for a couple of reasons. First, when I do things like my new podcast, MacBreak Weekly, the talk show, Vibe Drive, basically anything multi-person and or streaming, I need to plug in power, an audio interface, a proper webcam, and Ethernet, and that's a lot of plugs. Second, it's the only way to get ports on both sides of the MacBook Pro, which is far more convenient for the real world where real plugs can be on either side. So as much as Apple wants to keep one of the Pro's lower end, for me, you just have to have the full complement of ports to really be a Pro. That aside, I still all caps love this design. I've loved the look since its ancestor, the Titanium MacBook, first crawled out of the labs and onto the shelves, and I love the feel since the first unibody aluminum model shipped. The build quality is just so next level. My god kids are still using my old MacBook Pro from 2009, and it's still rock solid. And that, to me, provides a ton of value. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm eagerly anticipating the next great chassis design. This one just makes for a very high bar to clear. The speakers on both sides of the 13-inch MacBook Pro are good, if not 16-inch MacBook Pro great. And thanks to macOS Catalina, spatial audio in Dolby Atmos. So when I click on a new movie trailer, they still slap me awake and make me pay attention. Just the soundstage is in front of me and not all around me like the 16-inches. There's also still a 3.5mm headphone jack if you or your workflow demands it and a three mic array. It's not what Apple calls studio quality like the iPad Pro or 16 inch MacBook Pro, but it's still fine for work from home calls in a pinch. And which is still more than anyone can say for the 720p webcam, which is okay in perfect lighting, but not good and terrible if you're backlit or in low lighting. It's the same spec as the other current MacBooks. And here's what my comparison on that from last month looked like. This is the 2020 13 inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. This is the camera and microphone on the 2016 12-inch MacBook. This is the microphone and camera on the 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro. This is the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. 
This is a 2017 iMac Pro camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 920 1080p camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 4K Brio camera and microphone. This is a 2020 MacBook Air microphone and camera. This is a 2019 10.2 inch iPad front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 12.9 inch iPad Pro front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2019 iPhone 11 front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 13 inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. I fully get that better cameras require depth and the MacBook lids have just none to offer, but given how good iPhone, even iPad selfie cameras are, these cameras just aren't keeping up. If you, like me, would love to see iOS quality cameras come to the Mac, hit that like button and let's see just how high we can signal. The panel in this new MacBook Pro is the same as the previous MacBook Pro, 13.3 inches diagonal and 500 nits. It's retina, which means an average person shouldn't be able to make out individual pixels at an average viewing distance, and P3 wide gamut, which means reds look richer and greens deeper, and True Tone, which lets the color temperature of the display adjust to the world around it, so whites look less yellow, less blue, and more properly paper white. And yeah, the display is 13 inches, not 14 inches. So Apple didn't continue its war on bezels here, like they did on the new 16-inch MacBook Pro, keeping almost the same chassis size, but pushing the screen out further towards the edges. And I really, really wish they had. Screen to bezel ratio isn't just one area where Apple is lagging behind the competition. Bigger screen sizes have tangible benefits to pro users who stuff everything from extra lines of code to extra bits of palette into whatever space we can get. My guess is the big redesign we're all still waiting on is either late thanks to everything that's happening in the world right now, or the next generation externals are waiting on some next generation internals to go with them. It's also still LCD, not OLED, which I'm actually totally fine with. OLED is a technology that looks great with deep inky blacks and high sustained and peak brightness for full, real HDR, but requires significant mitigations and workarounds for stuff like off-axis color shift, burn-in, dimming, sub-pixel longevity, and more. And that's all just seems to work so much better on small phone-sized displays these days or big TV-sized displays than it does on tablets or laptop-sized displays, especially when it comes to things like consistent brightness levels. Mini-LED and micro-LED should offer the best of both worlds, at least eventually. Otherwise, this display still looks great and is both 20% brighter and wider gamut than the MacBook Air, which is something to seriously consider if you do a lot of imaging work of any kind. First, there's no Wi-Fi 6, which a lot of people, myself included, were really hoping to get with this update, especially since the iPhone and iPad Pro already have it. Since none of the recent Macs do though, and Apple has a history of being very early to new Wi-Fi standards, I'm guessing they're deliberately choosing to sit this one out on the Mac, stick with the very, very mature 802.11ac, and then pick up with whatever better, brighter version of the Wi-Fi standard comes next, whether that's Wi-Fi 6e or 802.11ay or... Who even knows at this point? Second, there's still an Apple T2 ARM-based coprocessor riding shotgun on the new MacBook Pro. Similar to the A series found in the previous generation iPhones, it handles everything from Touch ID and Apple Pay authentication to securing the camera and microphone to real-time encryption for the SSD to acceleration blocks for things like H.265 encode and decode to custom controllers for the various other components. 
It adds some expense to the MacBook lineup, but it also differentiates it in terms of technology and capabilities from anything else on the market. That it's the same T2 we've had for a few years now does rankle my inner nerd, though I expect we'll only see a T3 based on more recent bionic designs with neural engine cores when Apple is ready to move the Mac to Face ID, which I legit cannot wait for. Third, for a long time, Apple has kept around previous generation or lower spec versions of the Mac to hit lower price points. The truth is the latest and greatest specs come with the latest and greatest price tags. And while Apple will increase or even eat some of that on the high end, they do what they can to keep the entry level models entry level for people who prefer the pro design or simply want to flex that pro branding. Basically, Apple knows the price points they want to hit and then they pack in whatever they can to meet those price points. And this year, that means keeping Intel's eighth generation processors and Iris 645 graphics on the lower end models. And because Intel is so far behind on their roadmap, there's realistically not as big a performance gap between the low end eighth gen and the low end 10th gen as anyone would hope. But because Intel keeps raising prices, what there is is a pretty big price gap, especially for the top of the top of the line chips with all the priority customization and integration that Apple demands. It's the difference of a couple or few hundred bucks, but a couple or few hundred bucks is also the difference between low end and high end price tags. And don't just take my word for it. You can check out what fellow Canadian Dave2D had to say. The fact that Apple is using those old 8th gen chips that have slower GPUs, but still very capable quad core processors, it's actually a good thing. Now, the higher end models, like the one I'm reviewing, come with Intel's latest 10th gen processors and new Iris Plus graphics. Those offer far more execution units and the ability to do display stream compression should you want to connect up to Apple's 6K Pro Display XDR, you know, as one does. There's no discrete GPU option like there is on the 16 inch MacBook Pro, likely because of the size and thermal differences but you can add an external eGPU over Thunderbolt if you want or need to. So how well do these new chipsets perform? Pretty much exactly as expected. Intel is siliconing different these days. Here's Dr. Ian Cutris of Anantech explaining how it works from our previous video on the subject. The issue here is how turbo is applied, right? Um, most chips just normally idle at 1.4, 1.5 gigahertz. Everybody's used to that. And the idea is that they turbo up when you request performance. And there are two features to that turbo, how much you turbo up to and the time it takes to get to that turbo. So the idea is that if you open your browser, if you open Edge or Safari, um, the minute you double click, you instantly go into a high power mode. All the I.O. is loaded in, uh, CPU processes it and you get an instantaneous experience. That's the user experience focus point of turbo. The issue with these turbo modes is that obviously when you drive up the frequency, uh, you're driving up the power because power is related to the voltage and the frequency and it's a non-linear relationship. So when you start to do, say, some video encoding, it will go, oh, we need to be super responsive and go straight to the max turbo. And then it will sit there for a couple of seconds, then go, oh, hang on, we're drawing way too much power. We have to throttle back to a frequency which balances the power requirements of the workload, the power requirements of the system, but also the thermal limits of the system, especially in a mobile device. And that's that's typically where that sort of balance lies. And yeah, hit subscribe so you don't miss anything like that in the future. In terms of battery life, Apple promises 10 hours of typical workloads on these new MacBooks Pro, which is slightly less than the 11 hours they promise for the MacBook Air. 
Now, the Pros are using more powerful U-series processors, while the Airs are using more efficient Y-series processors. So, apples to crab apples. But Apple's also fine running processors at thermal max. So once you ramp them up, not only will you need to either cool them or your lap, that battery life will burn down much, much faster. To test one of the heavier potential workloads, I imported five minutes of 12-bit 4K Canon raw light footage into Final Cut Pro 10, applied a lookup table or LUT, added a basic color grade, and then rendered it out on this machine, as well as on the i5 Air and the i9 16-inch. None of this is scientific, of course, because there are way too many variables in the machines and in the atmosphere, but it took the 16-inch less than 10 minutes. It took the 13-inch just over 16 minutes. It took the Air almost 50 minutes. And yeah, that's totally not a realistic workload for the Air, but I just wanted you to see how all of it played out. And as usual, the 13-inch Pro, especially on the higher end, is really about choosing as much portability as you can get while retaining as much performance as possible. Still, I don't think anyone is really happy with Intel at this point. We're all having fever dreams of AMD or even custom ARM-based chips like the iPad Pros had going on half a decade. My guess is Apple won't ever pick and choose silicon suppliers on a year-by-year, generation-by-generation basis. AMD would have to outperform Intel, even on laptops, for several years and just crush them on roadmap before Apple would give up the pricing, customization, and integration benefits they get from a single vendor relationship. And if we're talking multiple years before there'd be any transition, it feels more and more likely we'd already be in the midst of an Apple custom silicon transition by then anyway. And for as many early adopters like myself who would just absolutely love to leap headfirst into that, there'll be just as many, if not more, that will want to keep buying Intel, the devil silicon they know, until whatever's next proves itself for that same several year period first. The key to Apple's update strategy in the mid-range for a long time now has been giving you more bang for your buck. At the lower end, they'll price drop more aggressively. For example, to get the MacBook Air back under $1,000. At the high end, they'll occasionally add new technologies that can even bump up the price for a while, like the touch bar. In the mid-range though, it's what you paid yesterday, only better. And that's absolutely true for the new 13-inch MacBook Pro. You start off with double the storage, a 256 gigabyte SSD at the entry level, but can push that all the way up to two terabytes. On the high end, you start with 512 gigabytes, but can push it up to four terabytes is not as much as the eight terabyte option on the 16 inch, but it's much better than before. Especially these days where it's finally affordable enough to have storage enough to keep more than a few big pro app projects on your internal drives. So you can move around without a bunch of SSDs and cards just dongle dangling all around you. Personally, I think the sweet spot for most people is probably around one terabyte. But if you do a lot of video or content work, it's great that you can go higher. The low-end memory options still start at 8 gigabytes and can go up to 16 gigabytes because that's still the limit on low-power memory for the 8th generation Intel chips. The high-end starts at 16 gigabytes now, though, and can go up to 32 gigabytes because that's possible with the new 10th gen Intel chips. Hell, the 16-inch can go all the way up to 64 gigabytes. And I also think 16 gigabytes is good for most people, unless you know you'll be doing something like running a bunch of virtual machines or simulators or other memory-intensive tasks. And remember, this is still the Baby Pro. There's a 16-inch model if you really want or need more. For a while now, ever since Apple introduced the new Scissor Switch Magic Keyboard on the 16-inch MacBook Pro, people like me have been waiting, Judge Judy-style watch-tapping, for it to spread meme-like across Apple's MacBook lineup. And with this 13-inch MacBook Pro, it finally has. 
the failure of Butterfly is now complete and the Magic Keyboard future is fully operational to totally mix up my Star Wars metaphors. I know some people still prefer the older, clickety clackety or scissor switches of the OT15 and earlier models and others still prefer the stability of the Butterfly switches. But for me, these new Magic Keyboards really are the best of both keyboard worlds. They have a bit more travel at the cost of a bit more thickness, which is fine, and maintain a lot of the stability at the expense of just some of that clickety-clack. It also has a proper escape key, which will delight developers and traditionalists everywhere, and a proper set of inverted T arrow keys, which will delight touch typists or basically anyone who types. And yeah, it also still has the touch bar between the escape key and the touch ID enabled power button, making up most of the top row. I know some people legit hate the touch bar and would rather have traditional function and media keys up there instead. I don't mind it in theory. I like it even for the shortcuts it exposes and the ease of scrubbing between browser taps and through timelines it enables. But it's going on four years old now and Apple hasn't expanded it to any other Macs, including the Magic Keyboard on the iMac Pro or new Mac Pro. And they haven't evolved the technology in any significant or meaningful way. Specifically to my interest, they haven't added anything by way of haptics. And I never, I just never want to be put in the position of wondering whether I'm more invested in a feature than the company who makes it. So I feel like it's time for Apple to go either all in on making the touch bar better and more ubiquitous or just get out and give people their function and media keys back. Let me know which one of those features you prefer in the comments below. I know a lot of people, yeah, including me, are complaining about the lack of an embiggened display and other more substantial updates this time around. But most of us are also the same people who up until now were saying, please, for the love of all things holy and unholy, just push that new keyboard out across the line. And this gives us exactly that, plus just a little bit more. The new low-end 13-inch MacBook Pro starts at $1299 US. That's for the two-port 8th gen model, which can be built to order optioned all the way up to $2499 US. For that, you get pretty much the previous MacBook Pro with double the storage and the new Magic Keyboard. And that's for anyone who might otherwise go for a MacBook Air, but wants those U-series chips, or wants the Pro design, or the Pro brand, or does something like photography that'll benefit from the brighter, wider gamut Pro display. The new high-end starts at $1799 US. That's for the four-port, 10th gen model, which can go all the way up to $3599 US with all the bells and whistles. And that's for anyone who needs a lighter, still as powerful as possible Mac to travel with when travel becomes a thing again. Or for people who just want as pro a Mac as possible, but don't want anything even a couple inches bigger or that's bound to a desktop. Or they already have a desktop. Final thoughts in a hot minute. I just first got to find this hot new Displate. Displate makes these amazing one-of-a-kind metal posters. Yeah, you heard that right. Metal posters. It's like wall art for the 21st century. You mount them with magnets and then, like these unibody MacBooks, they just look great for basically ever. Mine should be arriving tomorrow and I can't wait to unbox and hang it up in this new studio setup I've been working on for a month already. But first, I wanted to share just how much fun it was to find the poster. See, they have a ton of licensed as well as original art, so you can just search for whatever your heart and inner fanchild tells you. Like, you know, for me, Star Wars, Avengers, all of it but they also have these amazing curated collections so you can find your groove and then see where it takes you. I got lost in robots and drifted through animals for a long while. Now, I'm not gonna spoil what I ordered since I should be able to show it to you tomorrow, but because of how sturdy they are and how easy they are to mount, you can get as many as you want and arrange and rearrange them however and whenever you want. And that's the part that has me just 
really excited. And the absolute best part is you can right now hit up the link in the description and save 30% off some rad new displates all your own. Thanks Displate and thanks to all of you for supporting the show. Now, yes, this isn't the MacBook Pro update of anyone's rumor filled dreams, myself included, but I truly believe Apple should be updating the lineup any and every time they can, whenever new or better processors or graphics and storage options, and yeah, keyboards are available. That way, whenever someone is ready to buy, they'll know they're getting the absolute best Mac they and their money can buy. I'm absolutely still missing things like a more expansive display, a better camera, 16-inch quality mics and speakers, and arm inside. That's the update everyone really wanted. But getting Intel 10th Gen, Iris Plus graphics, and most importantly, the new Magic Keyboard, that's the update everyone really needed, at least for now. And that's the update this delivers. Personally, I'm all in on the 16-inch MacBook Pro because I'm also spending all day in Final Cut Pro. But if you need a better balance between performance and portability and the Air just isn't for you, finally, there's an updated 13-inch Pro I can recommend and you can buy without any of the previous caveats or hesitations. And more importantly, it's one more sign Apple is really getting their Mac mojo back. So now, hit like, hit subscribe if you haven't already, ring that bell gizmo so we can hang out and chat in the comments for the first hour right after the video goes live, and then hit up those comments and let me know, is this new 13-inch MacBook Pro the MacBook for you? Why or why not? Thanks for watching, and for more on the Mac, check out this playlist right here. Maybe here. See you next video.